Get up, shower, work, eat dinner, sleep. Okay, take a break. This week on Selected Shorts, daily rituals and how these habits make us who we are. Join three writers, three actors, and me, Meg Wallitzer, as we explore rituals that define us. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Shorts has a long history, and I'm so happy that as host, I get to be a part of it in a new way. This show has been my companion for years, and I'm so glad to be with you every week. We often do things out of habit. Sometimes it can help us organize our time, or even make us feel in control. But ongoing, repetitive behaviors can also spiral into something more than just a habit. They can actually take over our lives. On this selected shorts, three provocative works are on repeat. In one, a grooming ritual consumes a woman's life. In the second, time collapses. And in the third, a mother and son rehearse old patterns and find new ones. Our first story is a favorite from our archives, Oh, She Got a Headful Hair by Entezaki Shange. The late playwright, poet, and novelist is best known for her iconic work for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. She was a founding poet of the New Yorkan Poets Cafe and active in the black arts movement. In this short, dreamy piece, a woman's grooming ritual becomes a compulsion. And by the end of the story, she has both lost and found herself. Reading Oh, She Got a Head Full of Hair is Tamara Tooney, an actor known for roles on such television shows as Law and Order SVU and Blue Bloods, and films including Wall Street and The Caveman's Valentine. She's also a Tony Award-winning producer. Oh, she got a head full of hair. For months, Allegra simply brushed her hair. She had a dream that she had such a head full of hair that she couldn't lift her head off the pillows. Yeah, she had light blue satin pillows, like the sky in Manhattan for the four days a year that the wind blows. Blue like the horizon in Curacao, so it's hard to tell the bottom of the sea from the blue reaching to the sun. She already had this dream where she had such a head full of hair that young Rita Hayworth would have blushed with shame. Rapunzel pull her tresses back into the tower and Lady Godiva give up horseback riding. (laughs) Allegra altered her social life dramatically. She brushed 100 strokes in the morning, 100 strokes midday, and 100 strokes before retiring. She had a busy schedule. Between the local train and the express, she brushed. She brushed between telephone calls. At the disco, she brushed on the slow songs. She didn't slow dance with strangers. She brushed her hair before making love and after. She brushed her hair in taxis. While window shopping, when she had visitors over the kitchen table, she brushed. Allegra brushed her hair while thinking about anything. Mostly, she thought about what it would be like when she got her full head of hair, like lifting her head in the morning would be a chore. 
She would try to turn her cheek and her hair would weight her down. She dreamed of Chaka Khan, chocolate from Grand Central Station with all seven wigs, and Medusa. Allegra brushed and brushed. She used olive oil, hair food, and Posner's vitamin E, but she brushed and brushed. She soon lost contact with most of her friends. <laughs> she would have lost her job, but she was on unemployment and brushed while waiting in line for her check. <laughs> she got good recommendations from her social worker, such a fastidious woman, that Allegra, always brushing her hair. Nothing in their dream Allegra had suggested that hair brushing per se had anything to do with her particular head of hair. A therapist would say the head full of hair had to do with something else, like a symbol of Allegra's unconscious desires. But Allegra had no therapist. To her, dreams meant things like, if you dreamed about Tobias, then something happened to Tobias, or he was going to show up. If you dreamed about your grandma who's dead, then you must be doing something she doesn't like or she wouldn't have gone to all the trouble to leave heaven like that. <laughs> if you dream something red, you should stop. If you dream something green, you should keep doing it. <laughs> if a blue person appears in your dream, that's a person who's your true friend. That's how Allegra saw her dreams. And this head full of hair she had in her dreams was lavender and nappy as a three-year-old's in an apple tree. Allegra could fry an egg and see the white of the egg spreading in the grease like her hair was going to spread in the air. But she wasn't egg yolk yellow. She was brown. And the egg white wouldn't be white at all. It would be her actual hair, and it would be lavender and go on and on forever. But irregular, like a Rasta man's hair, irregular, gargantuan, and lavender, nestled on the blue satin pillows, pillows like the sky. And so she fried her eggs. She bought daisies dyed lavender and laced lavender table mats and lavender nail polish. Though she never admitted it, Allegra believed in magic. She could do strange things when she felt moved, when something came over her. After a while, everything around her waxed lavender, fluffy and consuming, except her hair. She even found a man who was so malnourished, he looked blue. <laughs> Allegra had all intentions of turning him lavender, but her cooking brought him back to health. Her sense of time changed used to be that daylight and nighttime was different. But so she could see her head full of hair, Allegra began to sleep at noon and get up at midnight. Her eyes would be so stunned from the visions of herself in laden in lavender nappy tufts, she stopped seeing the sky as indigo and azure. Always there was a hint of violent lavender seeping in the air about her. She brushed. And she brushed. And her hair was certainly healthy, but not significantly changed. Allegra knew no moment of bitterness. Through all the wrist aching and tennis elbow from brushing, she smiled. No regrets. Je ne regrette rien, she'd sing like Edith Piaf. 
When her friends wanted her to go see Tina Turner or Pacheco, she crooned, sorry, I have to brush my hair. <laughs> Some people send to Japan for Benoit, others to Sweden for kitty porn books. Allegra simply brushed her hair and smiled as if Jesus had not forsworn celibacy. When she started to schedule her day, or what we would call day and Jimi Hendrix would call lavender blue, around the different brushes she used at different hours, something happened. Allegra found ambrosia. Her hair grew pomegranates and soil riches round the Aswan. Allegra woke in her bed to bananas, avocados, collard greens, the tramp's latest disco hit, fresh croissant, poulet fousse, Ishmael Reed's essays, Charlotte Carter's stories streamed from each strand of her hair. Everything in the universe that Allegra needed fell from her hair. But it still wasn't lavender, wasn't any thicker or nappier than ever before but with the bricks that plopped from where a nine-year-old's top braid would be, Allegra built herself a house with running water and a bidet. She found Germaine Montiel bath soaps and douches in her roots. Her brick house with the garden she planted in the soil that fell from her head was Bob Marley's permanent address and only Michael Manley knew the phone number. She had a closet full of clean bed linen, and the little girl from the Castro convertible commercial opened the bed repeatedly and stayed on as a helper to brush Allegra's hair. <laughs> Allegra was the only person I know whose every word left a purple haze on the tip of your tongue. When this happened, she said clouds were forming and she would have to close the windows. Violet rain was hard to remove from blue satin pillows. Tamara Tooney performed Endozaki Shange's Oh, She Got a Head Full of Hair. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Shange's writing here is very physical. You can feel how the rhythm of the story replicates the act of brushing your hair. I've loved Entezaki Shange since my boyfriend got us tickets to go to Joseph Papp's Public Theater in New York City in 1976 to see for colored girls. I had never heard of Shange or her play, but I sat in the theater and was overwhelmed by the power of language and performance, the ache of it all. It was one of those experiences that leaves you very, very quiet afterward because you know that anything you say won't nearly be up to the level of what you just saw. Instead, it's probably best to just be still and let yourself marinate in it. Entozaki Shange invented her writer self after a suicide attempt and chose her name at that time. In Zulu, Entozaki means she who comes with her own things, and Shange means she who walks like a lion. Our second work, Half a Day, explores a sensation that we've all had, that we're racing through life like one of those speeded-up growth-of-a-flower films we used to watch in science class. One day we're a kid, and the next we're parents, then grandparents, and suddenly people are offering us their seats on the subway. An AARP starts lurking in the bushes and sending us membership cards we never asked for, along with very, very uncool discounts on car rentals. Though I did save a lot of money. 
For some reason, I have lately found myself on an email list from something called the Walk-In Bathtub Company. I don't know how this happened, but it's for people who can't step over a bathtub ledge, which, for the moment, I can still do. Thank you very much, Walk-In Bathtub Company. The narrative in the story is both familiar and uncanny. It begins with a boy setting out for his first day of school, about to be shaped into the man he will become. Half a day turns out to encompass a lifetime. It's by the late Egyptian writer Naguib Mahfouz, a Nobel laureate with a prodigious output. He has 300 short stories and 35 novels to his credit. His work includes the Cairo trilogy and the collection The Time and the Place and Other Stories, from which this piece was taken. It's performed by Bruce Altman, an actor whose television credits include featured roles on Blue Bloods and Mr. Robot, as well as the almost de rigueur credit for selected shorts readers, Law and Order. So to any actors out there angling to appear on our show, we suggest you first secure a role on Law and Order, as maybe a petty thief or serial killer, or even if all else fails, a bailiff in the court. And then your path to selected shorts will be made. Here's Bruce Altman with Half a Day. Half a day. I proceeded alongside my father, clutching his right hand, running to keep up with the long strides he was taking. All my clothes were new. The black shoes, the green school uniform, and the red tarbouche. My delight in my new clothes, however, was not altogether unmarred, for this was no feast day. But the day on which I was to be cast into school, for the first time. My mother stood at the window watching our progress and I would turn toward her from time to time as though appealing for help. We walked along a street lined with gardens. On both sides were extensive fields planted with crops, prickly pears, henna trees, and a few date palms. Why school? I challenged my father openly. I shall never do anything to annoy you. I'm not punishing you, he said, laughing. School's not a punishment. It's the factory that makes useful men out of boys. Don't you want to be like your father and brothers? I was not convinced. I did not believe that there was really any good to be had in tearing me away from the intimacy of my home and throwing me into this building that stood at the end of the road like some huge high-walled fortress, exceedingly stern and grim. When we arrived at the gate, we could see the courtyard vast and crammed full of boys and girls. Go in by yourself, said my father, and join them. Put a smile on your face and be a good example to others. I hesitated and clung to his hand, but he gently pushed me from him. Be a man, he said. Today, you truly begin life. You will find me waiting for you when it's time to leave. I took a few steps, then stopped and looked, but saw nothing. Then the faces of boys and girls came into view. I did not know a single one of them, and none of them knew me. I felt I was a stranger who had lost his way. But glances of curiosity were directed toward me, and one boy approached and asked, 
Who brought you? My father, I whispered. My father's dead, he said quite simply. I did not know what to say. The gate was closed, letting out a pitiable screech. Some of the children burst into tears. The bell rang. A lady came along, followed by a group of men. The men began sorting us into ranks. We were formed into an intricate pattern in the great courtyard surrounded on three sides by high buildings of several floors. From each floor, we were overlooked by a long balcony roofed in wood. This is your new home, said the woman. Here, too, there are mothers and fathers. Here, there is everything that is enjoyable and beneficial to knowledge and religion. Dry your tears and face life joyfully. We submitted to the facts, and this submission brought a sort of contentment. Living beings were drawn to other living beings. And from the first moments, my heart made friends with such boys as were to be my friends and fell in love with such girls as I was to be in love with, so that it seemed my misgivings had had no basis. I had never imagined school would have this rich variety. We played all sorts of different games, swings, the vaulting horse, ball games. In the music room, we chanted our first songs. We also had our first introduction to language. We saw a globe of the earth, which revolved and showed the various continents and countries. We started learning the numbers. The story of the creator of the universe was read to us and we were told of his present world and of his hereafter. And we heard examples of what he said. We ate delicious food, took a little nap, and woke to go on with friendship and love, play and learning. As our path revealed itself to us, however, we did not find it as totally sweet and unclouded as we had presumed. Dust-laden winds and unexpected accidents came about suddenly, so we had to be watchful at the ready, very patient. It was not all a matter of playing and fooling around. Rivalries could bring about pain and hatred or give rise to fighting. And while the lady would sometimes smile, she would often scowl or scold. Even more frequently, she would resort to physical punishment. In addition, the time for changing one's mind was over and gone, and there was no question of ever returning to the paradise of home. Nothing lay ahead of us but exertion, struggle, and perseverance. Those who were able took advantage of the opportunities for success and happiness that presented themselves amid the worries. The bell rang, announcing the passing of the day and the end of work. The throngs of children rushed toward the gate, which was opened again. I bade farewell to friends and sweethearts. 
and pass through the gate. I peered around, but found no trace of my father, who had promised to be there. I stepped aside to wait. When I had waited for a long time without avail, I decided to return home on my own. After I had taken a few steps, a middle-aged man passed by, and I realized at once that I knew him. He came toward me, smiling, and shook me by the hand, saying, It's a long time since we last met. How are you? With a nod of my head, I agreed with him and in turn asked, And you? How are you? As you can see, not all that good. The Almighty be praised. Again, he shook me by the hand and went off. I proceeded a few steps, then came to a startled halt. Good Lord, where was the street lined with gardens? Where had it disappeared to? When did all these vehicles invade it? And when did these hordes of humanity come to rest upon its surface? How did these hills of refuse come to cover its sides? And where were the fields that bordered it? High buildings had taken over. The streets surged with children, and disturbing noises shook the air. At various points stood conjurers, showing off their tricks and making snakes appear from baskets. Then there was a band announcing the opening of a circus, with clowns and weightlifters walking in front. A line of trucks carrying central security troops crawled majestically by. The siren of a fire engine shrieked, and it was not clear how the vehicle would cleave its way to reach the blazing fire. A battle raged between a taxi driver and his passenger, while the passenger's wife called out for help, and no one answered. Good God! I was in a daze. My head spun. I almost went crazy. How could all of this have happened in half a day between early morning and sunset? I would find the answer at home with my father. But where was my home? I could only see tall buildings and hordes of people. I hastened on to the crossroads between the gardens and Abu Koda. I had to cross Abu Koda to reach my house. But the stream of cars would not let up. The fire engine's siren was shrieking at full pitch as it moved at a snail's pace. And I said to myself, let the fire take its pleasure in what it consumes. Extremely irritated, I wondered, when would I be able to cross? I stood there a long time until the young lad employed at the ironing shop on the corner came up to me. He stretched out his arm and said gallantly, Grandpa, let me take you across.
Bruce Altman performed Half a Day by Naguib Mahfouz. This is such a deceptively simple fantasy. It feels like an elegant Twilight Zone episode. I'm Meg Wallitzer. When we return, a formidable mother. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and I've got great news. After more than 35 years of literature performed live, we've gone from the stage to the page with our new anthology of short stories, Small Odysseys. We commission new works from 35 favorite writers, including Lauren Groff, Dave Eggers, and Carmen Maria Machado. And we got back stories about unicorns, dandelions, iPhones, and the perfect birthday gift to give in the advent of the apocalypse. If you love great new fiction, pick up Small Odysseys, available at your favorite indie bookshop. On this edition of Shorts, we're looking at works about ritual and repetition. On this edition of Shorts, we're looking at works about ritual and repetition. See? I repeated that. Get it? We're hoping that Shorts is part of your weekly ritual, and if you've missed any part of the show... You can find it, and many others, on our website, SelectedShorts.org. There, look for the Subscribe to Podcast button, and you'll see links for Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. And please, if you like the show, share Selected Shorts with your friends and followers. Or write a review. We always like to hear what you think. Our final story, Fenstad's Mother, is by Charles Baxter. His works include the novels The Feast of Love and The Soul Thief, and the story collections Griffin new and selected stories, and there's something I want you to do, stories. There are several repeating patterns in this story. A diffident son's weekly visit to his feisty but aging mother, the formal pattern of a weekly class, the allure of late-night ice skating, and in each case something happens to change or disrupt the pattern. I chose this story because Charles Baxter gives us a moving glimpse of two people who are at the same time glimpsing each other. We've only known them briefly, but they've had decades to know each other, and yet they're still finding their way to seeing something new. There's a lot going on in this story, so we were lucky to be able to hand it over to an actress with great range and subtlety. Edie Falco was best known for her work on the television series The Sopranos and Nurse Jackie. Her films include Freedom Land and Sunshine State. On stage, she gave us a Tony-nominated performance in a revival of House of Blue Leaves. Now she reads Charles Baxter's Fenstad's mother. On Sunday morning after communion, Fenstad drove across town to visit his mother. Behind the wheel, he exhaled with his hand flat in front of his mouth to determine if the wine on his breath could be detected. He didn't think so. Fenstad's mother was a lifelong social progressive who was amused by her son's church going, and wine or no wine, she could guess where he had been. She had spent her life in the company of rebels and deviationists, and she recognized all their styles. 
Passing a frozen pond in the city park, Fenstad slowed down to watch the skaters, many of whom he knew by name and skating style. From a distance, they were dots of color, ready for flight, frictionless. To express grief on skates seemed almost impossible, and Fenstad liked that. He parked his car on a residential block and took out his skates from the back seat where he kept them all winter. With his fingertips, he touched the wooden blade guards, thinking of the time. He checked his watch, and he had 15 minutes. Out on the ice, still wearing his churchy Sunday morning suit, tie, and overcoat, but now circling the outside edge of the pond with his bare hands in his overcoat pockets, Fenstad admired the overcast sky and luxuriated in the brittle cold. He was active and alert in winter, but felt sleepy throughout the summer. He passed a little girl in a pink jacket pushing a tiny chair out over the ice. He waved to his friend Anne, an off-duty cop practicing her twirls. He waved to other friends. Without exception, they waved back. As usual, he was impressed by the way skates improved human character. 20 minutes later, in the doorway of his mother's apartment, she said, your cheeks are red. She kissed him on the cheek and turned to walk into the living room. Skating after church? Isn't that some sort of doctrinal error? <laughs> eh, it's just happiness, Fen's dad said. Quickly, he checked her apartment for any signs of memory loss or depression. He found none and immediately felt relief. The apartment smelled of soap and Lysol, the signs of an old woman who wouldn't tolerate nonsense. Out on her coffee table, as usual, were the letters she was writing to her congressmen and to political dictators around the globe. <laughs> Fenstad's mother pleaded for enlightened behavior and berated the dictators for their bad political habits. She grasped the arm of the sofa and let herself down slowly. Only then did she smile. How's your soul, Harry? She asked. What's the news? He smiled back, smoothed his hair. Martin Luther King's eyes locked into his from the framed picture on the wall opposite him. In the picture, King was shaking hands with Fenstad's mother, the two of them surrounded by smiling faces. My soul's okay, Ma, he said. It's a hard project. I'm always working on it. He reached down for a chocolate chunk cookie from a box on top of the television. Who brought you these? Your daughter, Sharon. She came to see me on Friday. Fenstad's mother tilted her head at him. You want to be a good person, but she's the real article. <laughs> Goodness comes to her without any effort at all. She says you have a new girlfriend, a pharmacist this time, Susan, is it? Fenstead nodded. Harry, why does your generation always have to find the right person? Why can't you learn to live with the wrong person? <laughs> Sooner or later, everyone's wrong. <laughs> Love isn't the most important thing, Harry. Far from it. Why can't you see that? I still don't comprehend why you couldn't live with Eleanor. Eleanor was Fenstad's ex-wife. They had been divorced for a decade, but Fenstad's mother hoped for a reconciliation. <laughs> Come on, Ma, Fenstad said. Over and done with. Gone and gone. He took another cookie. You live with somebody so that you're living with somebody. And then you go out and you do the work of the world. I don't understand all this pickiness about lovers. In a pinch, anybody will do, Harry, believe me. 
On the side table was a picture of her late husband, Fenstad's mild, middle-of-the-road father. Fenstad glanced at the picture and let the silence hang between them before asking, How are you, Ma? I'm all right. She leaned back in the sofa, whose springs made a strange, almost human groan. I want to get out. I spend too much time in this place in January. You should expand my horizons. Take me somewhere. Come to my composition class, Fenstad said. I'll pick you up at dinner time on Tuesday. Eat early. Uh, they'll notice me, she said, squinting. I'm too old. I'll introduce you, her son said. You'll fit right in. Fenstad wrote brochures in the publicity department of computer class during the day and taught an extension English composition class at the downtown campus of the State University two nights a week. He didn't need the money. He taught the class because he liked teaching strangers, because he enjoyed the sense of hope that classrooms held for him. This hopefulness and didacticism he picked up from his mother. On Tuesday night, she was standing at the door of the retirement apartment building, dressed in a dark blue overcoat, her best. Her stylishness was belied slightly by a pair of old fuzzy red earmuffs. Inside the car, Fenstad noticed that she had put on perfume unusual for her. Leaning back, she gazed out contentedly at the nighttime lights. Who's in this group of students, she asked. Working class people, I hope. Those are the ones you should be teaching. Anything else is just a career. Oh, no, they work all right, he looked at his mother and saw as they passed her under a street light a combination of sadness and delicacy in her face. Her usual mask of tough optimism seemed to be deserting her. He braked at a red light and said, I have a hairdresser and a garage mechanic and a housewife, a Mrs. Nelson, and uh, three guys who were sanitation workers, plenty of others. One guy you will really like is a young black man with glasses who sits in the back row and reads Workers Vanguard and Bakunin during class. He's brilliant. I don't know why I didn't test out of this class. His name's York Follett, and he's, I want to meet him, she said quickly. She scowled at the moonlit snow, a man with ideas. People like that have gone out of my life, she looked over at her son. What I hate about being my age is how nice everyone tries to be. I was never nice, but now everybody is pelting me with sugar cubes. She opened her window an inch and let the cold air blow over her, ruffling her stiff gray hair. When they arrived at the school, snow had started to fall, and at the other end of the parking lot, a police car's flashing light beamed long crimson rays through the dense flakes. Fenstad's mother walked deliberately toward the door, shaking her head mistrustfully at the building and the police. Approaching the steps, she took her son's hand. I liked the columns on the old buildings, she said. The old university buildings, I mean. I liked Greek revival better than this modernist bunker stuff. Inside, she blinked in the light at the smooth, waxed linoleum floors and cement block walls. She held up her hand to shade her eyes. Fenstad took her elbow to guide her over the snow melting in puddles in the entryway. I never asked you what you're teaching tonight. Logic, Fenstad said. Ah, she smiled and nodded. Dialectics. Not quite, just logic. She shrugged. She was looking at the clumps of students standing in the glare of the hallway, drinking coffee from paper cups and smoking cigarettes in the general conversational din. She wasn't used to such noise. She stopped in the middle of the corridor underneath a wall clock and stared happily in no particular direction. With her eyes shut, she breathed in the close air, 
smelling of wet overcoats and smoke. And Fenstad remembered how much his mother had always liked smoke-filled rooms where ideas fought each other and where some of those ideas died. Come on, he said, taking her hand again. Inside Fenstad's classroom, six people sat in the angular postures of pre-boredom. York Follette was already in the back row, his copy of Worker's Vanguard shielding his face. Fenstad's mother headed straight for him and sat down in the desk next to his. Fenstad saw them shake hands, and in two minutes they were talking in low, rushed murmurs. He saw York Follette laugh quietly and nod. What was it that Black saw and appreciated in his mother? They always liked her. They had written to her, called her, checked up on her. And Fenstad wondered if they recognized something in his mother that he himself had never been able to see. At 7.35, most of the students had arrived and were talking to each other vigorously, as if they didn't want Fenstad to start and thought they could delay him. He stared at them, and when they wouldn't quiet down, he made himself rigid and said, Good evening, we have a guest tonight. Immediately, the class grew silent. He held his arm out straight, indicating with a flick of the hand the old woman in the back row. My mother, he said, Clara Fenstad. For the first time all semester, his students appeared to be paying attention. <laughs> they turned around collectively and looked at Fenstad's mother, who smiled and waved. A few of the students began to applaud. Others joined in. The applause was quiet, but apparently genuine. Fenstad's mother brought herself slowly to her feet and made a suggestion of a bow. Two of the students sitting in front of her turned around and began to talk to her. At the front of the class, Fenstad started his lecture on logic, but his mother wouldn't quiet down. This was a class for adults. <laughs> they were free to do as they liked. Lowering his head and facing the blackboard, Fenstad reviewed problems in logic, following point by point the outline set down by the textbook. Post hoc fallacies, false authorities, begging the question, circular reasoning, ad hominem arguments, all the rest. Explaining these problems, his back turned, he heard sighs of boredom boldly expressed. Occasionally, he glanced at the back of the room. His mother was watching him carefully, and her face was expressing all the complexity of dismay. Dismay radiated from her. Her disappointment wasn't personal, because his mother didn't think that people as individuals were at fault for what they did. As usual, her disappointed hope was located in history and in the way people agreed with already existing histories. She was angry at him for collaborating with grammar. She would call it unconsciously installed authority, and then she would find some other names for it. All right, he said loudly, trying to make eye contact with someone in the room besides his mother. Let's try some examples. Can anyone tell me what, if anything, is wrong with the following sentence? I, like most people, have a unique problem. <laughs> the three sanitation workers in the third row began to laugh. Fenstad caught himself glowering and singled out the middle one. Yes, it's funny, isn't it? The man in the middle smirked and looked at the floor. I was just thinking of my unique problem. Right, Fenstad said. But what is wrong with saying, I, like most people, have a unique problem? Solving it. This was Mrs. Nelson who sat by the window so that she could gaze at the tree outside lit by street light. All through class, she looked at this tree as if it were a lover. Uh, solving what? Solving the problem you have. What is the problem? That's actually not what I'm getting at, Fenstad said, <laughs> although it's a good related point. I am asking what might be wrong logically with that sentence. It depends, Harold Ronson said. He worked in a service station. Sometimes he came to class wearing his work shirt with his name Harold stitched into it. 
Depends on what your problem is. You haven't told us your problem. <laughs> no, Fenstad said, my problem is not the problem. He thought of Alice in Wonderland and felt physically as if he himself were getting very small. <laughs> Let's try this again. What might be wrong with saying that most people have a unique problem? You shouldn't be so critical, Timothy Melville said. You should look on the bright side, if possible. What? Oh, he's right, Mrs. Nelson said. Most people have unique problems, but many people do their best to help themselves, such as taking night classes or working at meditation. No doubt that's true, Fenstad said, but why can't most people have a unique problem? Oh, I disagree, Mrs. Nelson said, still looking at her tree. Fenstad glanced at it and saw that it was crested with snow. It was beautiful. No wonder she looked at it. I believe that most people do have unique problems. They just shouldn't talk about them all the time. Can anyone, Fenstad asked, looking at the back wall and hoping to see something there that was not wall, can anyone give me an example of a unique problem? Divorce, Barb Kajelirud said. She sat near the door and knitted during class. She answered questions without looking up. Divorce is unique. No, it isn't, Fenstad said, <laughs> failing in the crucial moment to control his voice. He and his mother exchanged glances. In his mother's face for a split second was the history of her compassionate, ambivalent attention to him. Divorce is not unique. He waited to calm himself. It's everywhere. Now, try again. Give me a unique problem. Silence. This is a trick question, Arlene Fisher said. I am sure it's a trick question. Uh, not necessarily. Does anyone know what unique means? One of a kind, York Follette said, gazing at Fenstad with dry amusement. Sometimes he took pity on Fenstad and helped him out of jams. Fenstad's mother smiled and nodded. Right, Fenstad crowed, racing toward the blackboard as if he were about to write something. So let's try again. Give me a unique problem. You give us a unique problem, <laughs> one of the sanitation workers said. Fenstad didn't know whether he'd been given a statement or a command. He decided to, <laughs> he decided to treat it as a command. All right, he said. He stopped. He looked down at his shoes. Maybe this was a trick question. <laughs> he thought for 10 seconds. Problem after problem presented itself to him. He thought of poverty of the assaults on the earth, of the awful complexities of love. I can't think of one, Fenstad said. His hands went into his pockets. That's because problems aren't personal, Fenstad's mother said from the back of the room. They're collective. <laughs> she waited while several students in the class sat up and nodded. And people must work together on their solutions. She talked for another two minutes taking the subject out of logic and putting it neatly in politics where she knew it belonged. <laughs> the snow had stopped by the time the class was over. Fenstad took his mother's arm and escorted her to the car. After easing her down on the passenger side and starting the engine, he began to clear the front windshield. He didn't have a scraper. He had forgotten his gloves, so he was using his bare hands. When he brushed the snow away on his mother's side, she looked out at him surprised a terribly aged sleeping beauty awakened against her will. Once the car had warmed up, she was in a gruff mood and repositioned herself under the seat bell while making quiet but aggressive remarks. 
The sight of the new snow didn't seem to calm her. Logic, she said at last. That wasn't logic. Those are just rhetorical tactics. It's filler and drudgery. I don't want to discuss it now. All right, I'm sorry. Let's talk about something more pleasant. They rode together in silence. Then she began to shake her head. Don't take me home, she said. I want to have a spot of tea somewhere before I go back. A nice place where they serve tea, all right? He parked outside an all-night restaurant with huge front plate glass windows. It was called Country Bob's. He held his mother's elbow from the car to the door. At the door, looking back to make sure that he had turned off his headlights, he saw his tracks and his mother's in the snow. His were separate footprints, but hers formed two long lines. Inside at the table, she sipped her tea and gazed at her son for a long time. Thanks for the adventure, Harry. I do appreciate it. What are you doing in class next week? Oh, I remember, how-to papers. That should be interesting. Wanna come? Very much. I'll keep quiet next time if you want me to. Fenn's dad shook his head. It's okay, it's fun having you along. You can say whatever you want. The students loved you. I knew you'd be a sensation, and you were. They'd probably rather have you teaching the class than me. <laughs> he noticed that his mother was watching something going on behind him, and he turned around in the booth so he could see what it was. At first, all he saw was a woman, a young woman with long hair wet from snow and hanging in clumps, talking in the aisle to two young men, both of whom were nodding at her. Then she moved on to the next table. She spoke softly. Fenstad couldn't hear her words, but he saw the solitary customer to whom she was speaking shake his head once, keeping his eyes down. Then the woman saw Fenstad and his mother. In a moment, she was standing in front of them. She wore two green plaid flannel shirts and a thin torn jacket. Like Fenstad, she wore no gloves. Her jeans were patched. She gave off a strong smell, something like hay, Fenstad thought, mixed with tar and sweat. He looked down at her feet and he saw that she was wearing penny loafers with no socks. Coins, old pennies, were in both shoes. The leather was wet and cracked. He looked in the woman's face. Under a hat that seemed to collapse on either side of her head, her face was thin and chalk white, except for the fatigue lines under her eyes. The eyes themselves were bright blue, beautiful, and crazy. To Fenstad, she looked desperate, percolating slightly with insanity. He was about to say so to his mother when the woman bent down toward him and said, Mister, can you spare any money? Involuntarily, Fenstad looked toward the kitchen, hoping that the manager would spot this person and take her away. When he looked back again, his mother was taking her blue coat off, wriggling in the booth to free her arms from the sleeve, stopping and starting again. She appeared to be stuck inside this coat. Then she lifted herself up, trying to stand, and with a quick, quiet groan, slipped the coat off. She reached down, folded the coat over, and held it toward the woman. Here, she said, here's my coat. Take it before my son stops me. <laughs> Mother, you can't. Fenstad reached forward to grab the coat, but his mother pulled it away from him. When Fenstad looked back at the woman, her mouth was open, showing several gray teeth. Her hands were outstretched, and he understood after a moment that this was a posture of refusal, a gesture saying no, and that this woman wasn't used to it and did it awkwardly. Fenstad's mother was standing and trying to push the coat toward the woman, not towards her hands, but lower at waist level, and she was saying, here, 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 here. The sound like a human bird call, frightened Fenstad. He stood up quickly, reached for his wallet, and removed the first two bills he could find, two twenties. 
He grabbed the woman's chapped, ungloved left hand. Take these, he said, putting the two bills in her icy palm. For the love of God, and please go. He was close to her face. Tonight he would pray for her. For a moment, the woman's expression was vacant. His mother was still pushing the coat at her, and the woman was unsteadily bracing herself. The woman's mouth was open, and her stagnant water breath washed over him. I know you, she said. You're my little baby cousin. Go away, please, Fenstad said. He pushed at her. She turned, clutching his money. He reached around to put his hands on his mother's shoulders. Ma, he said, she's gone now. Sit down. I gave her money for a coat. His mother fell down on her side of the booth. Her blue coat rolled over on the bench beside her, showing the label and the shiny inner lining. When he looked up, the woman who had been begging had disappeared, though he could still smell her odor, an essence of wretchedness. Excuse me, Harry, his mother said. I have to go to the bathroom. She rose and walked toward the front of the restaurant, turning a corner, and was out of sight. Fenstad sat and tried to collect himself. When the waiter came, a boy with an earring and red hair and a flat top, Fenstad just shook his head and said, uh, more tea. He realized that his mother hadn't taken off her earmuffs. And the image of his mother in the ladies' room with her earmuffs on gave him a fit of uneasiness. <laughs> After getting up from the booth and following the path that his mother had taken, he stood outside the ladies' room door. And when no one came in or out, he knocked. He waited for a decent interval. Still hearing no answer, he opened the door. His mother was standing with her arms down on either side of the first sink. She was holding herself there, her eyes following the hot water as it poured from the tap around the bright porcelain sink down into the drain. She looked furious. Fenstad touched her and she snapped toward him. Your logic, she said. He opened the door for her and helped her back to the booth. The second cup of tea had been served, and Fenstad's mother sipped it in silence. They did not converse. When she had finished, she said, All right, I do feel better now. Let's go. At the curb in front of her apartment building, he leaned forward and kissed her on the cheek. Pick me up next Tuesday, she said. I want to go back to that class. He nodded. He watched as she made her way past the security guard at the front desk. Then he put his car into drive and started home. That night, he skated in the dark for an hour with his friend Susan, the pharmacist. She was an excellent skater. They had met on the ice. She kept late hours and, like Fenstad, enjoyed skating at night. She listened actively to his story about his mother and the woman in the restaurant. To his great relief, she recommended no course of action. She listened. She didn't believe in giving advice, even when asked. The following Tuesday, Fenstad's mother was again in the back row next to York Follette, one of the fluorescent lights overhead was flickering, which gave the room Fenstad thought a sinister quality, like a debtor's prison or a refuge for the homeless. He'd been thinking about such people for the entire week. For seven days now, he had caught whiffs of that woman's breath in the air. One morning Friday, he thought, he caught a touch of the rotten celery smell on his own breath after a particularly difficult sales meeting. Tonight was how-to night. The students were expected to stand at the front of the class and read their papers, instructing their peers and answering questions if necessary. Starting off and reading her paper in a frightened monotone, Mrs. Nelson told the class how to bake a cheese souffle. Arlene Fisher's paper was about mushroom hunting. 
Fenstad was put off by the introduction. The advantage to mushrooms, Arlene Fisher read, is that they are delicious. <laughs> the disadvantage to mushrooms is that they can make you sick, even die. <laughs> but then she explained how to recognize the common shaggy mane by its cylindrical cap and dark tufts. She drew a model on the board. She warned the class against the Clytocybe Eludens, the jack-o'-lantern. Never eat a mushroom like this one or any mushroom that glows in the dark. Take heed, <laughs> she said, fixing her gaze on the class. Fenstad saw his mother taking rapid notes. <laughs> Harold Ronson, the mechanic, reading his own prose painfully and slowly, told the class how to get rust spots out of their automobiles. Again, Fenstad noticed his mother taking notes. York Follette told the class about the proper procedures for laying down attic insulation and how to know when enough was enough, so that a homeowner wouldn't be robbed blind, as he put it, by the salesmen in whose ranks he had once counted himself. Barb Kajelarud had brought along a cassette player and told the class that her hobby was ballroom dancing. She would instruct them in the basic waltz. She pushed the play button on the tape machine, and tales from the Vienna woods came booming out. To the accompaniment of the music, she read her paper, illustrating, as she went, how the steps were to be performed. She danced alone in front of them, doing so with flair. Her blonde hair swayed as she danced, Fenstad noticed. She looked a bit like a contestant in a beauty contest who had too much personality to win. <laughs> she explained to the men the necessity of leading. Someone had to lead, she said, and the tradition had given this responsibility to the male. Fenstad heard his mother snicker. When Barb Kajelarud asked for volunteers, Venstad's mother raised her hand. She said that she knew how to waltz and would help out. At the front of the class, she made a counterclockwise motion with her hand. And for the next minute, sitting at the back of the room, Venstad watched his mother and one of the sanitation workers waltzing under the flickering fluorescent lights. What a wonderful class, Venstad's mother said on the way home. I hope you're paying attention to what they tell you. Fenstad nodded. Tea, he asked. She shook her head. Where are you going after you drop me off? Skating, he said. I usually go skating. I have a date. With the pharmacist in the dark? We both like it, Ma. As he drove, he made an all-purpose gesture. The moon and the stars, he said simply. When he left her off, he felt unsettled. He considered, as a point of courtesy, staying with her a few minutes. But by the time he had this idea, he was already away from the building, and he was headed down the street. He and Susan were out on the ice together, skating in large circles, when Susan pointed to a solitary figure sitting on a park bench near the lake's edge. The sky had cleared. The moon gave everything a cold, fine-edged clarity. When Fenstad followed the line of Susan's finger, he saw at once that the figure on the bench was his mother. He realized it simply because of the way she sat there drawn into herself, attentive, even in the winter dark. He skated through the uncleared snow over the ice until he was standing close enough to speak to her. Mother, he said, what are you doing here? She was bundled up, a thick woolen cap drawn over her head and two scarves covering much of her face. He could see little other than the two lenses of her glasses facing him in the dark. I wanted to see you too, she told him. I thought you'd look happy, and you did. I like to watch happiness. I always have. How can you see us? We're so far away. That's how I saw you. This made no sense to him, so he asked, how'd you get here? 
I took a cab, that part was easy. Aren't you freezing? I don't know. I don't know if I'm freezing or not. He and Susan took her back to her apartment as soon as they could get their boots on. In the car, Mrs. Fenstad insisted on asking Susan what kind of safety procedures were used to ensure that drugs weren't smuggled out of pharmacies and sold illegally. <laughs> but she didn't appear to listen to the answer. By the time they reached her building, she seemed to be falling asleep. They helped her up to her apartment. Susan thought that they should give her a warm bath before putting her into bed, and together they did. She did not protest. She didn't even seem to notice them as they guided her in and out of the bathtub. Fenstad feared that his mother would catch some lung infection and it turned out to be bronchitis, which kept her in the apartment for the first three weeks of February until her cough went down. Fenstad came by every other day to see how she was. And one Tuesday, after work, he went up to her floor and he heard piano music, an old recording, which sound much played, of the brightest and fastest jazz piano he had ever heard, music of superhuman brilliance. He swung open the door to her apartment and saw York Follette sitting near his mother's bed. <laughs> On the bedside table was a small tape player from which the music poured into the room. Fenstad's mother was leaning back against the pillow, smiling, her eyes closed. Follette turned towards Fenstad. He'd been talking softly. He motioned toward the tape machine and said, Art Tatum. It's a cut called Battery Bounce. Your mother's never heard it. Jazz, Harry, Fenstad's mother said, her eyes still closed, not needing to see her son. York is explaining to me about Art Tatum and jazz. Next week, he's going to try something more progressive on me. Now his mother opened her eyes. Have you ever heard such music, Harry? They were both looking at him. No, he said, I never heard anything like it. This is my unique problem, Harry. Fenstad's mother coughed and then waited to recover her breath. I never heard enough jazz. She smiled. What glimpses, she said at last. After she recovered, he often found her listening to the tape machine that York Follette had given her. She liked to hear the Oscar Peterson trio as the sunset and the lights of evening came on. She now often mentioned glimpses. Back at home every night, Fenstad spoke about his mother in his prayers of remembrance and thanksgiving, even though he knew she would disapprove. Edie Falco performed Fenstad's Mother by Charles Baxter. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Grown children and their mothers, it's such a strange combination. You're still someone's child as long as your parent is still alive. And yet every once in a while you chafe against the constraints and become like a really old teenager who's been grounded. There's always something interesting in acknowledging the power shift between parents and children. How it goes back and forth, back and forth, maybe forever. We've listened to three stories about habits and rituals and how they fit into and alter our lives. We're glad that Selected Shorts is one of your habits. Find several recent shows as well as episodes of our spin-off podcast, Too Hot for Radio, at our website, selectedshorts.org. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. 
Our radio producers are Jenny Falcon and Sarah Montague. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Jennifer Nolson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.